For those of you that are guests with us, glad that you're here. Let me add my welcome. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I have the privilege this morning of leading us in the reading and teaching of God's Word. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to pick up our journey through the New Testament book of James. So if you've got a Bible, phone, iPad, pretend to make your way to James. I know you think you're going to be bad if you do it while I pray, but it's all right. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into James. Father, thank you for for waking us up and bringing us here. Lord, I've been moved this morning at the privilege that we have to actually open up your word together as a people, read it in a language that we all understand, and use the the minds and the, the ears, hearts that you've given us to surrender, to receive your word, knowing with assurance and confidence that it's your word that saves us and it's your word that changes us, it's your word that transforms us. So God, this morning, we just ask that you would do the miracle this morning that only you can do, that you would take your word by your Holy Spirit and use it for the continued salvation and transformation of our hearts. We want you to continue to change us to the image and likeness of your son. And we ask these things in his name for your glory and our joy. Amen. Now you're free to go to James 1 if you want to. Now some of you stopped while I started to pray. It's okay. As you're getting there, I'm gonna tell you something about myself that some of you may know, you may actually believe to be true about me. Some of you may not know this about me or never really thought about it. But one of the things that I have become most aware of as I've gotten older and the years have accumulated in my walk with Christ is that I am one that can easily deceive myself. I'm someone that can very easily deceive myself and be satisfied into thinking that once I know something, once I've gotten my hands around why it's valuable, how it might be applied to someone's life and impact someone's life, I am one that can be very satisfied by that and be deceived into thinking that it's true about me just because I know it. Just because I believe it to be true and good. And left to my own devices, I can become very satisfied in self-deception, which is why I was reminded even yesterday that one of God's greatest gifts to me apart from his grace through Christ is, is my own wife because he made my wife in such a way that she's got a particular allergy to this kind of hypocrisy in me. She really has a particular allergy to this kind of hypocrisy, period. And so yesterday, God gave us the opportunity to spend a few hours just talking. Talking about the life he's called us to, talking about what it means to follow him, talking about the things we, we hope to be marked by as his people and our family to be known by because of his grace, and then really asking, well, is that true? And we say these things are true about us and we want to be true about us, but looking at how we actually live and the decisions that we make, and the habits and the rhythms that are regular in our life, is it reflective of what we actually say or, or have we allowed ourselves to be satisfied in our own self-deception? She's got an allergy to that kind of thing and it's good for me because I can become very easily satisfied in that. It's, it's why we've spent the better part of the last nine months and we're not done, even as pastors here, looking at the things we've said we believe and the things we say we do, even to things as, as minute to some of you as bylaws and going, well, do we really do what we say? 
when we say this is what we believe and why we do what we do, is it actually true? Or have we deceived ourselves into believing that something we say is true about us isn't really as true as we think? See, I know that I have a capacity to deceive myself and to be satisfied in my own self-deception. I know that it's there, but I know something else as well. I know that you have the same capacity to be deceived by yourself as well. I know that I'm not alone in it. The Bible actually has a great deal to say about our capacity for self-deception. And this morning when we pick up in this letter that Pastor James has written to the church that in his time had been scattered throughout the region due to persecution, he's going to have no shortage of things to say about our capacity to be deceived by ourselves. If you've got James open, we're gonna pick back up in James chapter one and just for a moment, we're gonna go back a few verses if you were with us last week to something that we read last week because I want you to see how James begins to pick up on this theme of deception and self-deception specifically. And I want you to see the various things that we're gonna look at over the next couple of weeks that he has to say regarding our capacity to deceive ourselves. So if you've got it open, James chapter one, look at verse 16. We looked at this last week. If you were with us, it's gonna sound familiar. But James said, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. You can't get more specific than that. James simply calls out the reality that you and I can be deceived. And we saw last week that you and I have a capacity to deceive ourselves regarding the reality of temptation and sin within our own hearts. And we have the capacity to deceive ourselves into believing things that are not true about God's mercy and God's generosity that he's shown us through Christ. And James says, don't be deceived, brothers. But he's not done. He's going to spend a little time on this capacity for self-deception. Look down at verse 22. James is going to say something like this. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. We have a capacity to deceive ourselves into thinking, and this is an occupational hazard of mine, but it's a way that I've been wired my entire life because of sin. We have a capacity to deceive ourselves into thinking that just because we know something to be true and know it to be good and know it to be beneficial, that it's actually transforming us. We have the capacity to know something to be true about what it means to live a righteous and obedient life before God and actually think that we're living that life just because we know it to be good, right, and true. Don't be deceived. In verse 26, he's not done. Look at this. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That's gonna be a fun week. An unbridled tongue is a reflection of a self-deceived heart. I'm not gonna tell you when we're gonna do that because you're gonna skip it if I tell you. Pastor James is particularly concerned that if we don't deal with our capacity for self-deception, we will deceive ourselves into living a life of utter hypocrisy, believing something to be true about us when it's really not. And that's destructive and ultimately deadly for God's people. So verse 19, we're gonna pick up the story right in the middle of all of that. And as you can guess, James is gonna deal with our self-deception here. Look at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Now that's just a positive way of saying don't be deceived. 
Don't be deceived is don't believe this that isn't true. Know this, my beloved brothers, is know this as opposed to this. It's a positive way of saying don't be deceived. There's something that we need to know. He wants us to understand and look at what he says. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, there's something that James says in the heart of these verses that I think frames the argument that he's making so far throughout this letter that will help us understand the specific things that James tells God's people here. And that phrase that you find in there is simply this. It's the righteousness of God. James talks about a righteousness of God that's meant to be produced, reflected in our lives. When James and other New Testament writers use this phrase, the righteousness of God, in talking about the lives that we live, it is a shorthand, very loaded and heavy way of talking about the fact that because God, by his grace, has saved us and made us new, our lives are meant to reflect the reality of having been made new creations. Our lives are meant to reflect something of the righteousness of God, that there is indeed a righteous, so to speak, way of living. And it's to be seen in the lives of God's people. This is the same way that, that, that Jesus even used this word, if you remember or were with us when we went through the gospel according to Mark, when Jesus said that the lives of his disciples were, were supposed to reflect or exceed the righteousness of even the scribes and the Pharisees. He's talking about a particular reflection that's meant to be seen in our lives. Now, it's not something new for James. James has already said this. He's just said it in a different way. Back in verse 18, we looked at it last week. James says that of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. We talked about that. We talked about God bringing us into new life. You and I, as followers of Christ, being born again by the word of truth, by the word of God's truth about his son who did what we could not do for ourselves and by faith in him are changed, are saved, are made new. By this word of truth, God brought us forth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his, creature, of his creatures. That first fruits is another way of talking about a type of reflection because of what God has done. Because of God's grace, having made us new creations, having caused us to be born again by his mercy, we are first fruits. We're supposed to reflect something new because of what God has done to our life. It's the same thing that he's saying in a different way when he talks about the righteousness of God that's meant to be produced and reflected in our lives. The Apostle Paul gets at this another way that we actually talk about around here with a little more familiarity when the Apostle Paul talks about the grace of God making us new and then giving us new identities. In particular, if you've been here for any period of time, you've talked about us as Christians, as God's people, having the identity of an ambassador. This identity is meant to, to communicate the same idea of our lives 24-7, what we speak, how we live, what we want, why we do what we do is meant to reflect something of the one we're called to represent. I mean, listen to Paul's, I'm gonna read this to you. Listen to Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians chapter five. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's similar to what James has already said, that God by his own will brought us forth. We were born again by the grace of God through the word of truth. 
Paul says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed and behold, the new has come. There's supposed to be something new reflected in the way that we live. And Paul said all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So Paul says this to God's people, therefore, because of what God has done, In making us new creations through the work of his son, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So as ambassadors, that image, that reality, that identity is meant to remind us that we are called by God because of what he has done in making us new through Christ to reflect him in every instance and circumstance in life. 24-7, the words we speak, the things we do, the motivations of our heart are meant to reflect the one who has called us to represent him. That's the same thing that James is saying when talking about that we are first fruits There's something that's supposed to be reflected in the newness of our life. Our lives are meant to produce and reflect the righteousness of God, the one who has saved us. We are called to be his ambassadors in the life that he has given us. There's something about the work that God has done in making us new that's meant to be reflected in the way that we live. It's meant to be visible in the way that we live. So Pastor James, here in these verses, he He wants us to understand what that newness looks like. What do the first fruits look like? What do those who have been made new by grace look like? What's an ambassador look like? And this is what he says. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, Ambassadors of Christ, those whose lives are reflecting the righteousness of God produced in them by his grace, those who are first fruits of God's mercy are meant to be those who are quick to hear. So let me ask it to you this way. As a new creation in Christ, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, just ask yourself, are you one who is quick to hear? Or if you're really honest with yourself or you are willing to ask someone who knows you well, would they say you're actually not a very good listener? You're actually not someone who's quick to hear. Do you know why it's particularly difficult for you and I to be quick to hear? I mean, underneath all the strategies that we can read and the books that we can read about how to be better listeners and different things that we can do to make people feel like we're connecting, all that stuff that's out there, do you know why it's actually difficult for you and I to be good listeners, to be quick to hear? It's because if we're really willing to admit it and really willing to be honest with ourselves, we are far more preoccupied and satisfied with our own opinions, with our own thoughts, with our own agendas and with our own desires, not only for our own life, but for the circumstance or the conversation or the situation that we find ourselves in. We find it difficult to be quick to hear. We find it difficult to be good listeners because we're so consumed with ourself. You see, being quick to hear, it comes out of understanding and owning and reflecting the reality 
that as a new creation in Christ, we are his ambassadors right here, right now, in this very moment and in this very situation. And so the conversation that we're in, the circumstance that we're facing, whatever situation we find ourselves in, the agenda at hand is not our own now. The agenda to get you to agree with my opinion, you to understand my way, you to want what I want is not the agenda at play anymore because we're ambassadors. The agenda at play in this conversation, in this relationship, in this moment is the agenda of the one that we're meant to represent and reflect. It's not about what's consuming our heart. It's not about our opinions. It's about what he wants in that moment what he wants in that situation. And here's the thing, being, a, a, being an ambassador of Christ, reflecting the righteousness of God with others, being someone who is very quick to hear, it requires a level of humility and sacrifice that apart from understanding who we are by the grace of God and letting that shape us is something we will not be willing to give. Being quick to hear it means that you actually care what the other person is saying and why they're actually saying it rather than just looking for an opportunity to get your opinion across. See, you and I, we, we can be quick to hear and we can understand the reflecting of the righteousness of God and being quick to hear when we realize and own the fact that we have an immense privilege of being ambassadors of Christ in that conversation, in that moment. When we allow ourselves to live out of the reality of who we are, having been made new by Christ, it allows us the opportunity and it calls us to the responsibility of being quick to hear. Because what we're after is not our agenda. What we're after is the agenda of the one who has put us in the situation. And I want to say this real quick too because there are some of you in here that would not naturally identify or be characterized by those who aren't good listeners. You're generally a pretty quiet person and I want you to understand something. Being quiet is not the same as listening. Being quiet is not the same thing as being a good hearer. Being a good listener, being a good hearer, recognizing that because of who you are by the grace of God and the reflection of his righteousness and his calling as his ambassador in this moment doesn't just mean that you're quiet. It means you're listening to understand and you're creating space right there, right now for that person in that moment and for the Lord to lead and work. Are you quick to hear? Are you slow to speak? Right there, together, two sides of the same coin, so to speak. Are you slow to speak? The righteousness of God being produced and reflected in the lives of his people, the, the, the reflection of his ambassadors in these moments is one of those who are slow to speak. Are you slow to speak? Or do you have a hair-trigger tongue? You're quick. An ambassador of Christ, one who's reflecting the righteousness of God right there in that moment is one who's slow to speak. Why? Again, think about the reality of who we are by the grace of God, having been made new. 
We are his ambassadors in that moment. So what is driving us in that moment is not the opinion we want to get across or the agenda that we have for the moment. It's the same thing that causes us to be quick to listen. It causes us to be slow to speak because we want to make sure the words that we actually say, what it is we're actually communicating is reflecting the agenda and the will we're called to represent. See, because of who we are, it's the argument that James is, is reminding God's people of because of who we are by the grace of God, that shapes the way that we're meant to interact with one another. That righteousness of the one who has saved us and who has loved us is meant to be reflected in the way that we engage with other people and it's to be reflected in a desire to listen. Desire in a, reflected in a desire to speak the words of the one we're called to represent. It's a tremendous privilege. It's a tremendous calling. And it's something that's very important to James. James wants God's people to realize, to understand that your words matter. In fact, the entirety of James chapter three is gonna be about the way you talk. It's gonna be about the control of your tongue. I mean, we already read verse 26 here. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. You know, an unbridled tongue. We've already said it. It's a reflection of a deceived heart. And in thinking about what this means most specifically for, for us as a church family, not for just Christendom as a whole or humanity as a whole, but, but for us right here, right now in Richmond, Virginia, this church family, one of the things that most concerns me about what James is talking about here is this thing that I, I, I'm trying to figure out the best way to say it. This is my third shot at trying to say it in a way that's clear. I want us to understand why our words matter and why they're so important and why being quick to hear and slow to speak is so valuable because I think if we're not careful, we can buy into this cultural idea that one of the utmost values that we can live under is this idea of authenticity. And in this world, authenticity means I'm 100% all the time. I'm real all the time. I say what's real, I say what's honest, I say it straight, regardless of what it might do to the person I'm talking to. And in the church, we talk about authenticity and we tend to adopt the same definition of what it means to be authentic and we talk about being 100% real all the time. I'm gonna tell it like it is. I'm a straight shooter. I'm gonna say it as I see it. That's just who I am. Regardless of what it might mean to you. And James is saying we need to be very careful about how we speak. We can't allow this idea of authenticity to form some kind of hall pass that allows us to hurt one another with our words under the guise of just being real and honest. An unbridled tongue is a reflection of self-deception, not authenticity. In fact, if you really want to be authentic, you need to understand what you actually mean by that. You, you can't hide behind and defend something that you can't accurately define. If indeed you are a new creation in Christ and you and I have been born again by God's word of truth and made his first fruits that we might produce and reflect his righteousness in our life and reflect him as his ambassadors, then James has just told us what authenticity looks like with one another. It means being quick to listen. It means being slow to speak. And it means slow to being angry. That's the most authentic life we can live as new creations. 
We can't buy into this cultural definition of what authenticity is and then use it as an excuse to speak in ways that hurt and harm other people and that do not reflect the one who has loved us and called us to represent himself. We gotta be careful with this. Our words matter. James is gonna beat this horse in chapter three, so I'm gonna stop right now because I can spend the rest of the morning on it, but are you quick to hear? Slow to speak. Are you slow to get angry? Look at what he says, verse 20. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Are you slow to get angry about unrighteous things? Are you quick to get angry? See, when James speaks here very specifically of the anger of man, what he is saying implicitly is that there are different categories of anger. And if we were to look at the Bible over the whole, we could say that there are two very broad categories of anger. One is biblically justifiable and one isn't. James speaks very clearly here about the anger of man, what you might call unrighteous anger. And this particular anger does not produce or reflect the righteousness of God. This particular anger of man, this unrighteous anger, it is not a reflection of the righteousness of God in us. This unrighteous anger, this anger of man, is anger that begins to boil up and is best seen in our lives coming out of us when something that we want, something that runs counter to our agenda. Something that we desire is blocked or crossed or is kept from us. The unrighteous anger of the Bible, the anger of man, is seen when our desires and our agendas, when our opinions aren't met or agreed with. In the garden, you see it play out. If you were with us when we went through the gospel according to Mark, in the garden, the night that Jesus was betrayed, it was Peter who demonstrated a slowness to hear, a swiftness to speak, and a swiftness to anger. And in that anger, he nearly killed a man with his sword. Thank goodness he was just a fisherman, and he missed. But the reality of it is simply this. The majority of the conflict, the majority of the tensions, the majority of the fights, James is gonna say the majority of the fights and quarrels amongst us Amongst God's people, the majority of the problems that we face with one another come as a result of short temper and hasty words. The unrighteous anger of man, it doesn't reflect the righteousness of God. In fact, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7 said, this kind of anger, it resides in the lap of fools. He just said, for the most part, those characterized by the unrighteous anger of man are foolish. In Proverbs 22, verse 24, he told us not to associate with anyone easily angered. Anyone characterized by an easiness, a speed, a swiftness to this kind of anger of man. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, expounding on the glory of God for his people and the grace of Christ, saving us, making us new, giving us this high calling, tells the church that we must rid ourselves of all things, especially anger. The unrighteous anger of man, 
anger that boils up when our wants and our desires and our agendas aren't met. It does not reflect the righteousness of God. But there is another kind of anger in the Bible. If the anger of man is an unrighteous anger, there is a righteous anger that you can see reflected in the Bible. And I'm gonna read something to you I read this week because this writer says things in a way that I just don't have the capacity to actually say. I'm just not that, not that strong with words. I want you to listen to his description of the righteous anger that we find in the Bible. A justifiable anger. He said, in a world that's been terribly broken by sin, where nothing operates as it was intended and where the evil often has more immediate influence than good, it would be wrong not to be angry. How can you look poverty in the face and not be angry? How can you consider the surge of AIDS in this world and not be angry? How could you look at political corruption that that makes government more a place of personal power than of societal protection and not be angry? How can you look at the rate of divorce in Western culture or the prevalence of domestic violence and not be angry? How can you consider the huge numbers of homeless people who wander our streets and not be angry? How can you consider the confusion of gender identity in this world and not be angry? How can you consider the state of our educational institutions, art, and popular entertainment and not be angry? How can you look at the state of the church, which seems so often to have lost its way and not be angry? How can you even look at your own life, your own family, your own circle of friends, how sin twists and complicates every location, relationship, and situation of your life and not be angry? How can you consider disease and war and environmental distress and not be angry? How can you look at the fact that nothing in your world is exactly as it was meant to be and not be angry? You simply cannot look at the world with the eyes of truth and with a heart committed to what God says is right and good and not be angry at the state of things in a fallen world. In a fallen world, anger is a good thing. In a fallen world, anger is a constructive thing. In a fallen world, anger is an essential thing. And I need you to hear what he's about to say. In a fallen world, anger is an essential thing. That is, if the anger is about something bigger than yourself. And he said, here is a principle to understand when it comes to anger in the Bible. The biblical acceptability of your anger depends upon the law with which you're angrily defending. Think about the times you got angry this morning. Think about the times you got angry this week. How much of your anger came as a result of you defending the law of God? How much of your anger this week had anything to do with the kingdom of God? How much of your anger this week had anything to do with the reality of sin and the impact of sin on other people in this broken and fallen world? How often was your anger a symptom of your recognition of the things that we just read? There is a righteous, justifiable anger in the Bible. And the anger that is righteous and justifiable in the Bible is in some sense throughout the entire story on a collision course with the anger of man. The anger of man who who grows angry and intolerant because his agenda and his purposes and his authority is being crossed and being twisted is on a collision course through the entire Bible with the anger of God that is just, that is for his glory, 
that has a zeal for, for mercy and holiness. And you can read the Bible in such a way that the entire story is really a story of these two angers on a collision course that ultimately collide and come to a head on the cross. Because it's on the cross that the holy and righteous and just anger of God collides in the body of Christ with the unrighteous anger of man. And in that moment and in that collision, the grace of God through the work of Christ allows those who see him for who he truly is, those who by the grace of God, God opens up the eyes of their heart to see his glory in the face of his one and only son. It's through his work and, and really God's anger towards sin that those who see Christ for who he is and believe upon him with all of their hope, with all of their heart, with all of their faith, can by the mercy and grace of God, through the promise of God, be set free from the tyranny and utter destruction of unrighteous anger. The anger of man. This is why James says in verse 21, therefore, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. By his own will, God has made you new creations through the work of his son, Jesus living the life that you were created to live, Jesus dying in your place, the death that you deserve to die for the life that you live instead. God exhausting his just anger for your sin, against your sin on his son and receiving his sacrifice as sufficient and raising Jesus from the dead so that as by God's grace you see Jesus for who he is and you believe upon him as your savior and as your king, you by the grace of God are made new. That's what James has been saying. You're new creations. You're now the first fruits of God's grace. Your life is now meant to produce and reflect the righteousness of the one who loved you and gave his own son for you and you now get to live your life 24-7 as his ambassador because of his great love for you. Therefore, put away all the filthiness and rampant wickedness. What James is saying is that because of God's great love for you, shown to you through the work of his son, you now want your life to reflect his righteousness. I now want my life to reflect the righteousness of the one who loved me and did not withhold anything from me, but exhausted his just anger upon his son in my place because he loved me. Because of that love, I, I want my life to reflect his righteousness. Because of his love for me, because of his willingness to send his own son to die in my place for my sins. Because of his love for me, I now want to take the reality of the sin in my own heart, the capacity for self-deception, the, the rampant filthiness and, and wickedness in my own heart. I want to take it seriously. Because of his love for me. Not so that I can take it more seriously and maybe he'll see it and then he'll love me. Because of his love for me because of what he's done for me, because of who he's made me. I now want to take the reality of the wickedness and the filth in my own heart and my own capacity to be deceived seriously. I think one of the reasons James uses the particular words that he uses here is in some sense to jar us when we hear it. To realize that the reality of sin in our heart, deception in our heart, it's wicked. 
It's filthy. And without understanding the reality of sin or for what it is through the, the lens of the way that God sees it, you and I can become all too complacent with it. We can allow ourselves, like we saw last week, to be so easily deceived by it. Because of his love for me, I now take it seriously. And the grace of God that has made me new, that has transformed me, it now drives me to not only want to see things the way that God sees them, but as I see them for what they are, I begin to admit that I don't always own them. I don't always see it the way that God sees it. And as he shows me, I, because of his love for me, I confess those things. I confess the reality of those things in my own heart. And I ask God to help me see them the way that he sees them so that I'll be as repulsed by them as he is. And if you want to get really specific in the context of what James is saying, it's because of the great love that God has for us that we want to reflect his righteousness in our life and we want to be serious about our capacity for self-deception. And so we say, God, I want to see these things the way that you see them. I want to see my inability to listen, my slowness to actually hear, as wicked as it really is, and as a, a poor reflection of who you really are and who you've called me to be, I want to see the quickness with which I speak, the unbridled nature of my tongue and the way that I speak to other people for the wicked nature that it really is. You think about what he's saying and you say, it really is sin. It's not a reflection of the righteousness of the one who has saved us and loved us. And because of your love for me, I want to see it. I want to see it so that I can confess it. I want to see it so that I can be cleansed. I want to see it so that you can change me. Because of your love for me, I'm serious about this. And not only that, he says, now we receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. This isn't a separate thought. This is like a two-stroke engine. It's not that we get rid of the rampant wickedness and filth. We see it for what it is and get rid of it and then we go and receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. The two things work together. It's this word, James has said, the word of truth about the Son of God. It's the word of truth about the grace of God through Christ, James said, that made us new creations. And it's the same word that God has implanted in our hearts that is saving us even now. Through Christ, in the word of Christ, God, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, has decisively and definitively saved you. The moment that God opened up your heart to see his glory in Christ and you placed your faith on Jesus as your king and as your savior, you were decisively and definitively saved, justified before God because of Christ. But God isn't done. The same word of God's grace through the work of his son, the good news of the gospel is saving you even now. And James says, as we receive this word with meekness, with humility, with surrender, as we go to this word knowing that it's this word that saves us, it's this word that continues to work in us, it will continue to expose the sin in us and take us to the only place we know to receive forgiveness and cleansing and mercy. It takes us back to that good word about God's son that saved us. It's as we receive it with surrender, as we receive it with meekness, it continues to show us who we are. And as we continue to confess who we are and our need for him, that, save word, that same word is saving us now. 
and taking us back to the one who can continue to change us. I mean, there's a way in which the Bible speaks of our salvation through the lens of something that happened in the past decisively and definitively through Christ, and it's true. Well, that same salvation is being worked out in your life now every single day as God is continuing to produce the fruit of his righteousness in you. And there's going to come a day when this salvation will be made fully and finally complete. And we see him face to face and we'll be made like him. And all that God is working out in us and producing in us will finally come to full fruition. That's the promise of God. And Pastor James knows that our greatest defense against our capacity for self-deception is the word of truth. It's the word of truth. It's the gospel. It's God's good word about his son that gives us new life, that causes us to be born again, that makes us his first fruits, that cultivates his righteousness in us, that it might be reflected from us. And as we receive it in humility today and tomorrow and the day after, it continues to do the work of saving us and changing us. So James is reminding us of who we are because of God's grace and he's calling us as God's people to a lifetime of continued growth and change by this same grace. That's James's good word for God's people this morning. You and I can deceive ourselves easily, but thank God he's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his wisdom. This morning, God gives us the privilege of actually responding to him in faith as his people. See, part of the Christian life is actually realizing that we don't have within ourselves the power or the wisdom or the capacity to actually change ourselves, to actually continue to change, to grow to no longer be those who are slow to listen and quick to speak and, and quick to get angry, to, to change, to, to grow and reflect the righteousness of God, we need to look somewhere else for that change. We can't ultimately change that about us. And the good news of God's word this morning is that the only somewhere else that we can look for this kind of transformation is back to the good word of God's truth about his son. That's it. Returning again to the good news that Jesus died the death that we deserve in our place for our sins. Back to the good news that his body was broken in our place and his blood was shed for our forgiveness so that by the grace of God opening up our eyes to see his glory and his majesty and the work of his son, we could place our faith in him and be born anew, become his first fruits and be assured of this, that the good news that saved us then is still saving us now. And as we see ourselves diagnosed in God's word, if you saw any of yourself in what James was saying this morning, if you saw your capacity to be slow to listen, but yet quick to speak and quick to get angry, that was a grace of God this morning. That was a merciful work of God showing you this morning who you really are and of your need for his forgiveness and his transformation and the only place that you can go to receive that forgiveness and that cleansing and that transformation is back to this good word. If you see anything of yourself this morning and what James was saying, good news, confess it. Turn away from it, repent of it, see it for what it is. 
But with confidence this morning, as God's people, as the musicians begin to play, come forward and remember the body of Jesus broken, the blood of Christ shed in your place for your anger, for your speech, for your unrighteousness. And with confidence and faith, remember that the good news of Christ that saved you, that justified you, that made you the first fruits of God's mercy is saving you still. And he's the one doing the work transforming you that you might reflect his righteousness in your life. I'm gonna pray for us this morning and then for those of us who are followers of Christ, we have a chance to come forward this morning and respond to God's good word, God's good news by remembering his son as we receive communion together this morning. If you're here this morning and you're with us and you're not a follower of Christ, I want you to know we're so happy that you're here. When we're here, we stand ready to help answer any questions that you may have about who Jesus is and and what difference what we're talking about here really makes and why it's so necessary for you to see Jesus for who he really is. We, We wanna help you with that, but let me encourage you in this, this morning as everyone stands and the musicians begin to play, if you're not a follower of Christ, I want you just to remain where you are. I want you to take this time and allow God to continue to deal with you in your heart. I want you to deal with Jesus. I don't want you to be concerned about coming forward and taking bread and and taking juice and and doing what you see everyone else doing. I need you to deal with Jesus. I promise you no one's going to be looking around. No one's going to be trying to figure it out. And then we're going to sing. We're going to sing and we're going to use the mouths that God's given us together to make much of him. And and then we're going to be sent out from here as God's people, his ambassadors, to reflect his righteousness in the place that he has put us. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll respond together. Father, thank you. Thank you you don't leave us to be deceived by our own hearts. You don't leave us to fight our capacity for self-deception in our own strength and in our own wisdom, but Lord, you give us your word of truth. You give us your Holy Spirit that we might not only see our need, that we might not only see our capacity for deception, but you give us the very thing we need to fight that deception and to see things as they really are, to see you for who you really are, to see ourselves for who we really are, to see our desperate need for you, not just once, but every single day. So this morning I ask in the moments that we have that by your Holy Spirit, you would do the miracle that's needed in every heart here for the first time or the first time in a long time to to see you, to see you, to see our need for you and to come without hesitation or reservation boldly to you and receive for you the grace we need in this time. And I ask that you would do this in Jesus' name and for his glory, for our transformation and joy. Amen.